In perhaps the most eloquent passage among all of his epistles, Paul teaches the importance for the followers of Christ to become one and then explains the way we can do it through charity, the pure love of Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. As always, it's such a privilege to teach the Come Follow Me lessons in the Sunday School Curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you should care to send a question to the program, my email address is gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Please remember, if you enjoy the podcast, to spread the word, either by your five-star review on Facebook or iTunes, or by sharing through word of mouth. As you remember, the last few weeks, what we've been doing is I've been inviting people to send in any question, whether it has to do with a lesson coming up or not. And so we have a few questions today that I'll take in order. The first comes from Charlie, who asks, why is Paul a Jew? Aren't Romans polytheists? Were there many Roman Jews? Uh, wonderful question, Charlie. The, the answer is actually that the question should be, why is Paul a Roman? So Paul's family was Jewish, uh, we can presume, because no, there weren't too many Jewish converts among the Romans. And the, uh, we know that Paul was a Roman citizen because of the various times in which, to escape punishment, he explained that he was a Roman citizen. And we can presume that he would have carried uh, a birth certificate or some documentation about this because that was generally expected. And the penalty for impersonating a Roman citizen was death. Now, we don't have scriptural evidence as to how Paul's family became Roman citizens, but we do have Paul claiming in one instance that uh, he was a Roman citizen from birth rather than having to buy the or purchase the privilege. If you remember when Paul was finally visited Jerusalem and was carried inside the Antonia Fortress, he's about to be flogged. Then he says, I was, I, uh, is this the way you treat Roman citizens? And the guard said, I paid a lot for this privilege. And Paul says, I had it from birth. One of the traditions is that Paul's father, his family, was carried away as prisoners of war, and then when they served their time, they were granted Roman citizenship and freed. So this is, this is perhaps one explanation as for why Paul was a Roman citizen. But as for why Paul was a Jew, uh, his family was descended from Jews. So it was always uh, taken, it was a given that Paul was going to be a Jew. The, the thing that was notable about Paul was that he was a Roman citizen. Great question. Natalie asks, I was reading the leadership handbook today because I'm in the Relief Society presidency in my ward. And chapter 21, section 1.2 is pretty clear that English-speaking members of the church should use the King James Version for doctrine and not other translations. Here's a quote from the manual. English-speaking members should use the Latter-day Saint edition of the King James Version of the Bible. This edition includes the topical guide, footnotes, excerpts from Joseph Smith translation, cross-references to other passages, in the, in the Bible and to the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and other study aids. Although other versions of the Bible may be easier to read, in doctrinal matters, Latter-day Revelation supports the King James Version in preference to other English translations. What an important question. Thank you very much, Natalie, for asking that. And this is exactly right, and I can think of at least five reasons why we use the King James Version as our doctrinal basis for our biblical translations. The first is that it's a pretty dang good translation. It, has, it carries forward a lot of the original metaphors 
from the Hebrew. So instead of translating those metaphors into more accessible metaphors that English speakers could relate with, the translators of the King James Version, they left those in the original uh, language. For example, the parable of the sower isn't somebody doing something else. He's still a sower and he's still casting seeds by the wayside, etc. Second, it's important that we have one translation that we agree on so that our our study aids, etc., they all reference the Bible and they reference languages, or I'm sorry, they, they reference the same passages using the same words so that we can all know where we're at. And when we, when we memorize scriptures, we're memorizing from the same version. The other three, the last three reasons that I can think of basically boil down to the same thing, which is that Joseph, the King James Version is the version that Joseph Smith had. So uh, the Book of Mormon... The third, the third reason, the Book of Mormon contains translations from the brass plates which were taken from the Bible, and because Joseph Smith's Bible was the King James Version, then Joseph Smith, uh, when he translated biblical passages, that was the language that was more, most accept, accessible in his brain, and it came out using the language of the King James Version. Fourth, the King James Version is the version which Joseph Smith used to make his translation of the Bible, the Joseph Smith translation. And finally, since Joseph Smith's time, church leaders and general conference speakers have referred to biblical passages using the King James Version. So, Natalie, of course, I'm aware none of that answers your question. Uh, Your question is, why would I encourage people to use other translations? And let's go back to what the manual says. In doctrinal matters... Latter-day Revelation supports the King James Version in preference to other English translations. Now, I hope that this is true, and if not, then I need to repent, but nine times out of ten when I recommend reading another translation, I recommend reading the other translation first and then reading the King James Version, and that is precisely because it's important that in doctrinal matters we prefer the King James Version. So, however, The King James Version, the reason that I believe in reading other translations is not for doctrine, it's for clarity. And that clarity is huge. Um, Incidentally, if you remember President Nelson's recent conference talk where he talked about the word for repentance, he said, the word for repentance is metanoeo, and then he explained the different parts of that word and broke it down. What President Nelson was engaging in right there was the act of translating the scriptures. He was explaining one of the words from the scriptures and breaking it down. This is a sacred act. This is a sacred process, the the process of translating the word of God so that it can be more accessible to people. So remember, when you're reading the Bible, even if you're not reading the King James Version, it's, it's still the Bible. You're not reading a bad book. There's nothing wrong with reading those other translations. Uh, and and nine, times ten, nine times out of ten or even 95 out of 100, there isn't going to be a doctrinal discrepancy between the, the King James Version and any other version. It's really going to be, the difference is going to be in the clarity. And I, I believe that we, but understanding is important first, and then go back to the King James Version, read it, and see if there's some doctrinal difference. Now, you're going to find doctrinal differences in places about the atonement, the fall, important things like that, perhaps the law of Moses. But most of the time... It's going, you're going to get a boost in your clarity by reading another translation first and then reading it in the King James Version. I hope that answers your question to your satisfaction. I'm totally in support of this passage in the, in the manual, and I totally believe in the King James Version, and I love it. It's very dear to my heart. And I believe that it is the best translation, and it's like poetry. It is, like, it is a work of great literature. 
in, aside from its Greek roots and Hebrew roots, in English, it is a great work of English literature. And, uh, and also, you can't totally take it aside from its spiritual roots as well. So it's, it's not only a work of great literature, but a work of great spiritual prowess. Uh, it's the greatest book ever written. Uh, until Joseph Smith brought forth the Book of Mormon, it was the, the way to uh, learn about Christ. It was the most correct book on earth, and it was the only word of God. So if I've ever given any other impression about my opinion of the King James Version, then I'm grateful for the opportunity to clarify that, and I appreciate your wonderful question. Angie asked a question from the chapters for this lesson this week. Uh, this, this question is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. She writes, The idea that women were created for men to be a helpmeet doesn't feel good to me. I don't like being the afterthought or the subservient one. I'm still all in, although I have had this doubt or complaint since I was 16 years old, arguing the point and suffering through the scriptures, as I read and felt second class. Polygamy makes me feel second class. Why is something so painful recognized by God as sometimes necessary? Why does Paul teach that women were created for men, if he wants us to feel unified. He should be teaching us that we treat each other well with respect. What's wrong with equality? Angie, this is a beautiful question, and it's crucial, and uh, I'm going to defer answering it until we get to that point in, in this week's lesson. And In fact, uh, I'll spend most of our time today talking about subjects related to this, so I appreciate this question. Such an important one. Thank you so much for asking it. And in fact, we're not going to take too long to get there because the, the meat of this lesson is in, in my opinion, is in chapters 11, 12, and 13. And uh, so we can, we'll, we'll touch briefly on chapters 8, 9, and 10 uh, in 1 Corinthians. First of all, in chapter 8, the main question that Paul answers in this chapter, and he returns again to it in chapter 10, is can a faithful saint eat food offered to idols? And so the question originally came about because, if you remember, in Acts chapter 15, there was this, this controversy about the, the law of Moses and did Gentiles converting into Christianity, did they have to be circumcised and did they have to obey the law of Moses? Did they have to convert to Judaism first? And at that time, the directive was, don't eat food offered to idols, don't fornicate, obey the Ten Commandments, basically. And the, the importance of those particular observances in the Law of Moses were reduced. Nevertheless, one of, the, one of the commandments that was emphasized was don't eat food offered to idols. And what Paul is, this is Paul clarifying that directive now and saying, look, you don't have to, every time you sit down, you don't have to find out the provenance of every article of food that you're, that you're going to put into your mouth. The, the important thing is that you are not worshiping an idol, and eating food offered to an idol is an act of worship. And he clarifies it even more later on in verse in chapter 10 when he says there's, there's actually no sin in eating something that has been offered to an idol. It, unless somebody says to you, this has been offered to an idol. Now if you partake of it, you're actually consciously engaging in worship of that idol, especially because that person knows that they have given a Christian this, this worshiping food. And so an act of eating in that meal is an act of worship of a pagan idol. And that you should never do. And so it's not the food that matters, but it's the meaning that we attach to the food that is important. It's a distinction that continues throughout these chapters. Moving on to chapter 9, 
this in this chapter, Paul actually explains uh, that he is deserving of some sort of pay for his work in the ministry, and then he explains that he chooses not to receive it. So uh, the first the first part of the chapter is him explaining that the as Christ said, the laborer is worthy of his hire because Paul has dedicated his entire life to the ministry. It actually would be appropriate for him to receive a living from that work, and then he says, but because I think that it might cause a stumbling block for some. I work for my own sustenance. It's similar to what King Benjamin said. You know, I'm your king, and yet so that you would not feel the burden of taxes, which would be grievous to be borne, I've always labored with my own hands for my sustenance. And presumably the king would also be able to benefit from living off of the people's wage and receiving a remuneration for his job as king. But King Benjamin refused that that was in many interpretations, probably his due. And Paul is saying the same thing. Uh, I don't want anyone to, as he puts it, make my glorying void. We're in 1 Corinthians 9, cha- uh, chapter 9, verse 15. I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things that it sh- should so be done unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. So in, in order to avoid that anyone would take his motivations wrong, Paul is willing to forego all of the financial benefit that he could have had, and instead he has to work for his own living. As we mentioned when we studied the book of Acts, Paul was a tent maker. And so often when he would stay and be building up a church, he would also establish a tent shop, and he would his day job would be building tents or making tents, and then his night job or his weekend job, or, or who knows what his, how he divided his time, but uh, he would be an apostle the rest of the time. And it's tied into the idea of eating the meat, right? Because he says, I live like a Jew among the Jews. I live like a Gentile among the Gentiles, which is to say he meets people where they're at. If a Jew would have his faith challenged by seeing Paul, he says specifically that I'm not, I'm not subject to the law of Moses in verse 20. He says, um, uh, unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. In verse 21, to them that are without law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. So Paul is saying, though I'm not subject to the law of Moses, I'm happy to observe those things in order to avoid giving offense to those who believe that they are the most crucial of the commandments, rather than the commandments that we know are the most crucial, which are the internal ones. All of these points are leading up to Paul's central point in chapter 13, which is his great discourse on the value of charity and how nothing else really means anything. The meaning of everything we do comes from the love with which we do it. I might mention at the end of this chapter, Paul also says uh, in verse 24, know, know ye not that they which run a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain. Paul, uh, just, just as a bit of trivia, Paul uses racing metaphors quite a bit in his epistles, and he likens following the gospel to running a race more often than any of his other analogies. So um, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to remember about Paul. He, mu- he may have been a runner or he may have followed sports in some way, but these are, these are sports metaphors. He also uses, um, in verse 25, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it, and striveth, striving for the mastery you could think of that as someone who is in a, a boxing match or a wrestling match. Uh, so another sports metaphor. 
And this you would probably only be aware of if you read this in another translation. So again, no, there's no doctrinal difference here, but it, is, it, it does help in clarity to know that he's talking about sports if you were to read this particular verse in a translation other than King James. And as I mentioned before, in chapter 10, Paul goes again into why it's important not to eat food offered to idols. It's because what's important, it's not bad for its own sake. What's important is the meaning that we place on this activity. And uh, earlier in the chapter, verses 16 and 17, Paul discusses the sacrament. And, and this is building on things that he had, ideas that he has introduced earlier in last week's lesson, earlier in the epistle to the Corinthians, talking about how we're unified when we are partaking of the sacrament. So what he's saying is when we drink from, should we be divided? You know, should we have different sacrament services in the same room? You know, if you were baptized by Paul, you were baptized by Apollos, would you take, would you take the sacrament separately or would you take it all together? And that's what they were doing. And uh, what he's saying is we should take it together. And when we take it together, when we partake of the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ. We become one. This is him preparing us for the lesson that he will teach in chapter 12, which is what it means to be the body of Christ. So here is him explaining that as we take the sacrament, every week we go in, we worship Christ by partaking of his body and blood, and this unites us. We become the body of Christ. This is not an idea that, Christ, that originated with Christ, uh, or I should say Christ didn't, we don't learn this directly from Christ. I imagine that Paul had it from Christ himself, that he had it through inspiration. But we learn this from Paul, from Paul's epistles, that we, the believers, are the body of Christ. That is a metaphor that has come to us through Paul. It's a very powerful one, uh, and it reaches its culmination in chapter 12. We'll cover in just one minute. And then we get back to chapter 11, which was the chapter that Angie had a question about. This is one of the chapters. There are a couple others. There's, there's some passages in the New Testament. Let your women be silent in the churches, for example. Uh, that occur throughout the, the epistles of Paul. And here in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, there are a number of passages that fit this description. They would seem to be saying to women, um, you are some sort of a lesser believer, or you're, a, you're a lesser member of the kingdom. Um, I, I, there is a woman, and I won't mention her name, but uh, she... She was in the group that went to Jerusalem with me, and she's become a well-known Mormon feminist writer. She wrote a passage about, uh, she wrote a story about what it was like to help men understand what it was like to be a woman in a man's church. And she flipped the genders of a lot of the things we believe, like the prophet Joseph Smith and God and Jesus Christ. You know, what if you worshiped a woman? How would you feel as a man? How would you feel? Uh, it was, it's an interesting, I think, it's an interesting uh, mental exercise to think about that as a man and to understand what it would feel like to be a woman. It's really important, um, we men, that we can empathize with the women in the church who feel this way. And uh, I, I've also seen a, an interview that she did where she talked about when she was on her mission, the mission president used to say to the missionaries, uh, and because they were mostly elders, he would say to them, work really hard so that you can gain a good-looking spouse. You can get gain this reward when you go home of a good-looking wife. And as one of the few sisters, she felt this made her feel really awful, as you may imagine, because, number one, she felt like the mission president seemed to be saying that the value in the spouses that these elders would choose 
would be in how they looked. And number two, that was her value as a woman was as a reward to a man someday for his hard work. And of course, uh, that made her feel second class. And not everyone is going to struggle with this in the same way, uh, but I think there are a lot of people who feel the way Angie did about this, which is that it's not okay for me to feel like I'm a second-class citizen, a second-class believer, because I'm a woman. And I've seen it happen to many people, to good friends, and also in my own family, that these kind of questions, if they're left to fester long enough, something will give. Um, Eventually, faith will subside, because deep down we all have this knowledge that we are children of God and that we are good enough, that we are valuable to God. And if, we, and if we allow our minds to think that our beliefs are in conflict with this knowledge for long enough, then one of them has to give. And it might be our beliefs, right? And so uh, I've seen people leave the church because they believe, well, the church teaches me that I'm just not as good as other people. I'm a woman. The church teaches that I'm not as good as a man. Eventually, either the belief that in the church has to give or the belief that you're as good as a man has to give. If you, as long as you accept the premise that this is what the church is teaching. And so that's why this question is so important. It's so important that we look at it. First of all, um, another thing that, that Angie says is, I don't feel like sexism can be explained away by saying the ideas are antiquated. The creation story explains my existence as a woman, as a helper, not an equally important and capable human. Now, Um, I don't want to disagree with you, Angie, but I do think it's important that I clarify some of the things you're saying. First of all, um, sexism can be explained away by saying the ideas are antiquated. Um, And I'm going to talk a little bit about why I think that. First of all, um, I I personally, it's important for me to say I personally believe that without any sort of patronizing at all, that women are every bit as important as men to God, to Jesus Christ, to our Heavenly Mother, and they should be as important to each of us, to men and to women, uh, as men are. Um, That's my personal belief, and I've always felt this way. I grew up in a family of strong women. My mother was um, often the one who taught us the gospel. My sisters were given as much freedom as the boys had to express their ideas, and so I always thought that, uh, but it, in fact, it never even seemed like a question to me that women should be allowed to voice their opinions as much as men should. Uh, it was never even something that came up in our home. The, the idea that um, women were worth less, it just that was an idea that I had to be exposed to outside of my home. And I think for that reason, I'm a little sensitive to it when I see that idea echoed maybe in the scriptures or by members of the church, because I don't actually think it's part of the gospel. Now, how then do I explain that idea's presence here? And it's, it's, it is indisputable that it's here in chapter 11, uh, the idea that women are there to serve men only. So first of all, um, let's look at a little bit about what Paul is talking about. What, what does he say that is so offensive to women? First of all, it's not that it's super offensive. It's that a man should keep should uncover his head when he's praying in church, when he's praising God, and a woman should cover her head. So he's explaining the differences. Now, um, it seems pretty obvious to me that the difference in dress and uh, covering your head customs are very much that. They're just customs. They're cultural phenomena. But uh, there's actually proof 
in the scriptures themselves that this is what's going on, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But Paul uses this as an object lesson to say, uh, men, men uncover their heads because a man is in the image of God and woman is in the image of man. So this is, this is Paul's interpretation of the creation story. And, uh, and if I were a woman, I think I would find this very hard to hear as well. Uh, because it does seem to be saying that a man is the first-class citizen and a woman is the second-class citizen. Now, Angie, to your question, it, it's, it's not okay, it's not enough to say that these ideas are antiquated to explain them away because they seem to be buried in the creation story themselves. Well, this is Paul's, uh, to that I would reply, this is Paul's interpretation of the creation story. And uh, elsewhere in this, uh, and in this epistle and in the epistle to the Romans, Paul says, you know, here I am, Paul, speaking as a man, and here I am, Paul, speaking as this, this I have from God. So there are times when Paul differentiates between his opinion and the things that he's received through revelation. So we know that he can put both of them into an epistle. Now, I'm not saying that he does that here, but uh, the fact that that is a possibility should be with us. Also, um, remember that God, when he gave the law of Moses to the Israelites, he didn't give them a perfect law. The, the purpose of the law of Moses was to be the best law that they were capable of obeying. He, he made an effort, God made an effort in his mercy to meet them where they were. And God does this for me when I pray to him and I ask for the Holy Ghost, even though I'm not perfect and I have plenty of things that I need to repent of, there are times when God blesses me with the Holy Ghost and with forgiveness or with direction or with inspiration even though if uh, God were to tell me everything that was on his mind, it would be this huge laundry list of all the changes that I need to make in my life. And so it is the mercy of God that allows us to receive imperfect direction. We have plenty of evidence of that in the scriptures. So Paul, let's say that you accept as a given, just for the sake of argument, that Paul has ideas that would later be superseded by more advanced ideas about the equality of men and women. And God allows Paul, he meets Paul where he's at. And Paul did this with the Israelites when he talked to them about how to deal with slaves, for example. He didn't say, when you take someone in battle, when you take a prisoner in battle, treat them mercifully. Uh, you should release them immediately at the end of hostilities. You should never take a slave. Uh, God instead said, treat your slaves equitably, give them a chance to be freed every, every seven years, free all the slaves. And so God met them where they were. He met their culture where it was. And there was certain allowance made for their, what we would think of as backwardness of their culture. And in my opinion, this is not scriptural and this is not necessarily doctrinal, this, this particular interpretation, although I do think it's doctrinal that men and women are equal. But it's not necessarily doctrinal that all of this is cultural to Paul, that Paul is bringing in his cultural here. But this, this is my interpretation of this, is that Paul is here making a cultural statement. Now, in verse 16, we have the clearest evidence of this. When Paul says, in the King James Version, we have, If any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Uh, if you want to know a little more clarity what that means, you can read it in another translation, and what it says is, if, if, if any man has a problem with what I'm saying, if anyone disagrees with the idea that women should uh, cover their head in church when they're praying or when they're praising God or teaching about the gospel, then 
I'll, I'm just telling you, this is not our custom, or it's not the custom of any of the churches that women should do this. So Paul, as proof that this is the right thing to do, he actually says, this is our custom. And that should tell us, this is a cultural thing. This is what's going on in their culture at that time. And therefore, Paul is teaching culture in, in chapter 11 here. And I'll address the, what Paul says about the creation in a moment, but uh, one of the things that Paul says in verse 11, he says, nevertheless, so he's been talking about how women should be subject unto their husbands. And then in verse 11, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man and the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, and he's, this is with particular reference to uh, the creation where uh, Eve was created from Adam's rib. Even so is the man also by the woman. In other words, every man is born of a mother, but all things of God. So even, even though Paul seems to be saying men and women aren't equal, here he's saying that the man is without, not without the woman or the woman without the man, and they all do come from God. So Paul makes a nod here towards equality. Incidentally, among the Macedonian state uh, saints, there were actually, uh, and this we, we discussed this when we talked about uh, the women in the book of Acts, there were women who made Paul's entire ministry possible. Women who were, they, they observed a matriarchal structure in Macedonia at that time, and women would have been the ones to decide if their family was going to join the church, where the money gets spent, uh, interestingly enough, and Paul was the beneficiary of the uh, approval of several of these important women. Uh, and I also made a point of mentioning that Jesus Christ, during his ministry, there were certain people that he allowed to serve him. Most of Christ's ministry was spent him serving others, and there were certain people that Christ allowed to serve him that had that distinct privilege of, instead of Christ coming to them with what they needed, Christ was willing to receive things from their hand. These people were mostly, almost all, women. Now, to the idea that a woman is a helpmeet for a man, and that is the, the whole reason that she exists. Um, once again, this is a case for, this is a perfect example of something where there's a, a clarification to be found in another translation. So when the King James translation was made, um, and I'm sure you've heard the word help meet rendered help mate. In other words, uh, I have somebody who is my mate who is there just to help me. So I'm a man and my woman is basically my servant. My wife exists to be a servant of mine. Now this is a misinterpretation of what these words originally meant. Meet, uh, M-E-E-T, at that time meant something that was appropriate. And a help meant a could mean a companion, right? So there are plenty of ways to um, interpret this word help. So it actually helps in this case to go back to the original Hebrew and to see, first of all, to see how other translations have rendered this, this same phrase. And you'll find things like a helper suitable for him, uh, a compliment for him, a fit companion for him, a suitable companion. Uh, I'd like to read something. This, the, the word help in Hebrew is ezer. So Ebenezer means stone of help. You may have heard that name. Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, for example, the character from Charles Dickens' famous story. That first name uh, was popular because it's a biblical name, meaning the stone of help. And help also has the additional meaning of, salva of salvation. So uh, an azer is also a savior. When you think about this, um, someone who's suitable or matched to you 
and is your savior or your deliverer is a lot different than this is somebody who is my uh, my servant, right? Um, I want to I want to read a a commentary at, that I found on ScottWoodward.org. The sense of the phrase "Azer Kenegdo," which is uh, meet help meet. The sense of the phrase "Azer Kenegdo" is an equal but opposite helper to him. For example, my left hand is the Azer Kenegdo to my right hand. Both hands look alike, except they are exactly opposite. Both hands are equal but opposite. This is so that they might work better together. Imagine trying to pick up a shovel with two hands that are positioned the same. Again, the Azer Kenegdo of the right wing of an airplane is the left wing. They look exactly the same, except they are opposite each other. Both wings are equal but opposite. This is so that the airplane can fly. One wing is no more important than the other. The same is true with man and woman. Man's Ezer man's Kenegdo is the woman. Both are equal but opposite. It requires both to fulfill the role of parenthood. And parenthood, as we know, is God's, God sees himself of all the titles that he could have taken. He's chosen Heavenly Father as his most important title. And we know his wife as Heavenly Mother more than by any other appellation. And so parenthood is the role that God uses to describe his heavenly job. Therefore, uh, I, I see no discrepancy in what modern prophets are saying about the way church feels about men and women and their equality and this interpretation of the creation story. The fact that woman was created separate, or second, I'm sorry, doesn't mean that women, woman was not as important as we see uh, you remember I've referenced many times the Elder Nelson's talk from 1993 about the three creations. The, the creation in the Garden of Eden was a paradisiacal creation, but the, the fall was another type of creation, which he calls a mortal creation. And in that creation, Eve was the one to act first. And so I don't see any, when we, when we interpret this carefully, and we don't filter it through the lens of the intervening centuries in which cultural tradition said that women are second-class citizens, I admit. Uh, but, but if we read the scriptures through that filter, of course we're going to have that idea reinforced. But when we don't read it through that filter, when we go back to the original, uh, it's just simply not there. It's not there in the doctrine. It's not there in the creation story that women are second-class citizens, that women exist as, simply as rewards for man, man's labor, uh, it's just not true. And the men who act like it is true are in need of repentance. So Angie, that is my response to your question, and I offer it with all of the empathy that I can muster as a man who doesn't know exactly how you must feel. Uh, I hope that every man listening to this will understand that it's very important to give women empathy, understanding, and validation about this because um, their feelings on this are very real and very understandable. And also, it is not, this is not an idea that, that women are not as important as men. This is not an idea that I find any basis for in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I spent a fair amount of time on that question because it ties right in to uh, what Paul go, where Paul goes next, which is in chapter 12, he talks about the differences among people. And I have, a, I have another response to, that, to what we were just talking about that has to do with this chapter that comes from my mission. 
there was a particular area I served my mission in uh, Portugal and also in the Cape Verde Islands, which are off the west coast of Africa. And those two countries are separated by 2,500 miles. And so it was very remote. And apparently I was a young missionary. I was sent there um, as a junior companion. I didn't know a whole lot of what was going on. But apparently in one of my zones, there was the, some strife or disagreement between the zone leader and uh, some of the sisters. And he, the zone leader was trying to make the sisters aware of who was boss and who he was in charge. He was the one who was entitled to receive revelation, etc. So things went on that way for a while, and I was unaware of it, right? I just, I just found about, out about this afterwards when the mission president made his monthly visit, and he came through and he found out what was going on, or perhaps he'd been receiving the letters from the sisters, and he came and gave our, we had a zone meeting, and he sat, he gave our zone a lecture, and that lecture was entirely from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we sat down together, and we, we sat in a circle. We had the chapel all, all to ourselves. Uh, it was a smaller chapel, and we turned the chairs to face each other, and we read the verses in this chapter, the second part of this chapter. And we read one verse at a time, one to each other, and we read how it was important. And the point of this chapter is that the different parts of a body are not in conflict with each other, even though they're different. This is such a brilliant metaphor of Paul to talk about us. First of all, he established that we're the body of Christ when we partake of the symbols of the body of Christ, which is beautiful. And then he, he talks about how if we are all one body, then how can we rejoice when someone else is hurting? Um, the, way, the way that I would explain this is if you stub your toe in the middle of the night, you don't immediately, your hands don't go, oh, cool, you know, that uppity toe finally got what was coming to it. No, you sit down, you use your bum to sit down, use your hand to reach down and massage your toe, and your, your face in the darkness, nobody sees it, but your face is probably making some sort of grimace out of the pain that you feel in your toe. It's not your toe that feels it, it's you, it's all of you. Every part of your body is suffering because your toe is suffering. And this is what Paul is going for. He's saying, no, it, it would be just as stupid. It would be just as silly for you to feel like uh, that, that suffering is deserved over there but not over here, or that I'm separate from you. It would be just as silly as for a hand to say to the eye, I don't need an eye, or, or for a nose to feel superior to the ear. So he, make, he makes these examples like if... If the whole body is an eye, then how are we going to walk around? If the whole body is a tongue, then where we, what are we going to smell with? What are we going to hear with? We need all the different parts. The body is made so that there are different parts in it, and that is all for a reason. So the first part of this chapter is Paul talking about how gifts come in diverse, there are diversities of gifts, right? In verse 4, he says, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. So we're all receiving these wonderful gifts of the Spirit. And they might be things like the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, the, the interpretation of tongues, but they all work through the same Spirit. And we're all baptized into one body, as he says in verse 13. Whether we're Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, we're all made to drink into one Spirit. So he, now he's bringing in again Back from uh, chapter 10, he's bringing in this, these images of the sacrament, saying this is when we become one body together. And 
The body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? So just because we say we're not part of this group, does that mean we're not? If just because we think we can choose not to be one with everyone, does that mean we get to be exempt from the requirements of being part of the body of Christ? Uh, no, of course not. No more than a foot can say, I'm not part of the body, and then be part of the body. And then be not part of the body. What the foot thinks it says, what the foot wants, doesn't have anything to do with whether it's part of the body or not. It's not up to the foot. This is his point. If they were all, in verse 19, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 19, if they were all one member, where were the body? In other words, in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? And so taking this back to our discussion on men and women, uh, so often we're, we're concerned, like, okay, how can I decide which, which part of the body I am? Am I the tongue? Am I the hand? Am I the head? Am I the eye? Am I the foot? Because it feels like I'm less than, or it feels like I'm greater than, because I'm this partic- I have this role or I have this gift. And what Paul is saying is the, the body is not one member, but many. And he goes on to expound, the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. There should be, in verse 25, there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. When, whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ. What an, what an amazing lesson this is. When's the last time you thought, okay, somebody in my ward somebody in my ward family, right? Somebody with, who is part of the body of Christ with me because we partake of the sacrament together. Or somebody of my earthly family, somebody of my physical family. They receive an award. And for me to be jealous is just as inappropriate as it would be for my right hand to be jealous of my left hand. Instead, the whole body has been honored. For me to be happy if another person comes upon misfortune is just as inappropriate as it would be for my hand to rejoice when my toe is stubbed. It would be just as silly. This is, this is the ideal that we're, that we're searching for, that we're striving for, as we become the body of Christ together. In the, uh, in the final verse of this chapter, Paul says, covet earnestly the best gifts, obviously, Right? You, because there's a diversity of gifts, and because you're all, in other words, because you're all different parts of the body, that's great, you're all different, but try to, try to have the best gifts. Try to seek after to constantly be increasing your gifts. But, and, then, and this is important, but gifts are great. It's great to have spiritual gifts. It's great to be an important part of the body. And yet, I show unto you a more excellent way. And then you just turn the page. Right? In the original, there was no division. This is not a new chapter. This, is, this follows right from what he was saying. If you want to be unified, if you want to love each other, then let's talk about charity. Let's talk about the pure love of Christ. 
This, uh, and the pure love of Christ, is a phrase we get from Moroni chapter 7, uh, which is but an echo of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, and the reason, the reason why uh, Moroni had access to the ideas in uh, the New Testament is a topic unto itself we'll get into when we do the Book of Mormon next year. But I would suggest you reading at least the second half of Moroni chapter 7. Also, I would suggest 1 Corinthians 13 is probably, um, it's kind of like the 23rd Psalm. It's one of those chapters of Scripture that would be that would well reward your efforts in memorizing it. Uh, it, would, it would truly change the way you think if you had these words with you always. These, these would be verses very, very much worth the effort to memorize them. Though I speak as with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Although I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, although I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. So here's Paul explicitly saying all the gifts that were so important in chapter 12. There's one thing that makes them worthwhile. And if you don't have it, then all those gifts are as if they didn't exist at all. This is the key that makes the members of the body work together. And let's say that your particular role in the body that you find yourself a part of is the role of head and therefore you think you're important, and you don't have charity, those gifts that put you there don't actually mean anything. You are nothing. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though and so um, this is actually a contrast of the two meanings of charity that we have in modern English. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, which we would think of as charity, right? Obviously, Paul is now talking about another meaning of charity. It's not giving to the poor. Because here's somebody giving to the poor, and yet they're nothing. Although I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Again, the gifts of the Spirit without charity. Charity is the key that unlocks all of the benefits of the gifts of the Spirit. Without them, he doesn't mean that prophecies of old will not come true. What he means is if you have the gift of prophecy, it will leave you or it won't profit you without charity. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. In other words, there was a time when I understood the gospel without charity. I learned the gospel, I learned the precepts of the gospel. I might have even learned about Christ, but I didn't accept his love into my heart. But when I became a man, when I fully grew up in the gospel and understood the entire point of the teachings of Jesus, then I put away childish things. 
and I was willing to have charity in my heart and unlock the power of all of the rest of the gifts of the Spirit. Verse 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. He's talking explicitly here about the veil. Charity is the means by which we breach the veil, that we make a bridge between man and God. We see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. The word used here for charity is agape, elsewhere translated as love. So it's equally correct. Uh, There are many versions of this chapter which render that word as love. If I don't have love, Moroni describes charity as the pure love of Christ. And that's a phrase that could have at least three meanings, right? Because if I have the love of Christ, it means Christ loves me. But if I have love of Christ, it means I love Christ. And if I go around showing the love of Christ, it means I am loving other people the way Christ loves them. So it is correct to say that, my, that love from man towards God is charity, love from God towards man is charity, and love from man towards each other is charity. If we don't have these particular kinds of love, and if we're not willing to sacrifice ourselves, to, to not puff up ourselves, to seek not our own, to not be provoked, to think no evil. These are, these are, you can't just define this word. You have to describe what it does, right? Paul found, Paul found it very daunting to define charity, to define agape, this, this perfect love of Christ. And so then instead of defining it, what he did was he described what it does. It suffers long. It's long-suffering. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It, it's not prideful. It's, it doesn't get easily offended. It doesn't think evil. And it doesn't rejoice when evil things happen, but it rejoices in the truth. As Moroni said, now Mor- what Moroni wanted was for us to have access to this saving, most saving of all attributes. And uh, in Moroni 7.48, he says, um, this is actually from his father. This is Moroni taking notes of one of his father's sermon, sermons. And what Mormon says is, Wherefore, my bro- beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart. This is uh, Moroni 7.48. Pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified, even as he is pure. That interesting that he should say we should see him as he is, for, because at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12, Paul says, Now I know in part, but then I shall know, even as also I am known. So part of charity is us knowing Christ and being known of him and knowing that we are known of him, feeling his love, feeling his infinite acceptance of us. There's no room in charity, there's no room in the body of Christ for comparison, for making one person less than another, for making anyone feel like their part of the body is less valuable than our own part of the body 
or making ourselves feel like we're more important or less important than another. The very heart within us, the soul within us rebels because deep down we know we're children of God and we are all important. We all matter. We matter to Christ and we matter to God. Christ gave everything for us. And so let us remember this, that when we come together to take the sacrament, we are becoming united with the other members of the body of Christ. I'm going to finish this lesson by reading a talk by Elder Holland from April 2019 conference called Behold the Lamb of God. This is toward the end of his talk. He says, When the sacred hour comes to present our sacrificial gift to the Lord, we do have our own sins and shortcomings to resolve. That's why we're there. But we might be more successful in such contrition if we are mindful of the other broken hearts and sorrowing spirits that surround us. Seated not far away are some who may have wept outwardly or inwardly. Through the entire sacramental hymn and the prayers of those priests, might we silently take note of that and offer our little crust of comfort and our tiny cup of compassion? Might we dedicate it to them or to the weeping, struggling member who is not in the service and except for some redemptive ministering on our part, won't be there next week either? Or to our brothers and sisters who are not members of the church at all, but are our brothers and sisters? There is no shortage of suffering in this world, inside the church and out. So look in any direction and you will find someone whose pain seems too heavy to bear and whose heartache seems never to end. One way to always remember him would be to join the great physician in his never-ending task of lifting the load from those who are burdened and relieving the pain of those who are distraught. When, this, when these are our thoughts, then... We will truly be united together. We will truly, truly all make part of the body of Christ. And we will have the correct attitude, the attitude of charity that unlocks every other spiritual gift and leaves no room for one soul being, and leaves no room for one soul feeling like it should be exalted above another. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 